Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. The priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Himelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. The priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. There is none but that here. David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our sermon title this morning is Deliverance in Exile. This is where David finds himself. David comes to the city of Nob, which we haven't heard of yet, but it is the new location, the new center for worship for Israel. If you remember all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, Shiloh was the center of worship, and that has been destroyed by the Philistines. And so along with Eli and his two sons, there is a new place and a new priest. Ahimelech has taken his place. As David comes to Nob, though, we kind of have to ask a question right off the bat. Did David just tell a lie? Did you think about that as we read verse 2? He says, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. Was this true? Did the king send David on a secret mission that he wasn't allowed to talk about? Some of you are saying no. Some of you are just waiting for me to tell you what I think. It's 
interesting because the author doesn't tell us, does he? This is a part of the story, but the weight of these first six verses is really on a second question. The author doesn't make a comment on David's story to Ahimelech, but instead he points to a bigger question. Why does David get to eat the holy bread? Who is David to participate in this? You know, in Exodus, we learn about the table of presence. It's a really fascinating piece of furniture in Old Testament worship. It was a key part, really, because it was there to communicate the presence of God to his people wherever they were. Remember, the tabernacle did this as a whole as well. It was a tent. It was something that would be torn down and carried around to wherever they were going. And particularly in their wilderness wanderings, this was very important. It was important not to make a permanent structure for where you could meet with God because they didn't have a permanent home yet. Well, the tabernacle hasn't kind of transformed yet into the temple, but it has sort of made a semi-permanent home in Nob where you could then find a place to pray, a place to meet with God, though God is everywhere. It was important for the people of Israel to have a specific holy place to meet a holy God. And this table of the presence was in the holy place where 12 loaves of fresh bread were replaced every Sabbath to keep the bread hot and warm and fresh. And this was a picture of God's moment-by-moment nourishment and love for his people, his provision for them, which, again, if you go back and you read Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, especially Numbers, we're reading that as a family right now, one of the biggest problems Israel has is forgetting that God is with them and that they need to treat him as holy. And so this table of the presence and the 12 loaves symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, one for each, was a very important part of Israel's worship in the Old Testament. Now, this fresh bread was replaced every Sabbath, and it was allowed to be eaten, but only by whom? The priests. Only those who were set apart for it. So while we look at this passage, and our first question is, how come David tells a lie and kind of gets away with it? The weight of the passage is more so, if you read this as an original audience, what you're, see, what you're really thinking is, how does he get to eat the bread of the presence? That doesn't seem right. That seems to be the bigger issue. There would be special circumstances where non-priests in Israel were allowed to eat the bread. This appears to be one of them. For David, we recognize him as one wandering in exile. He's a traveler. He needs food. Ahimelech only asks if they have kept themselves ritually pure and as much as they haven't shared an intimate moment with women as they journeyed. As if they had, they would have been considered unclean for a time. Remember, just as a side note here, being unclean is not the same thing necessarily as being sinful. Okay? You could become unclean by touching a, a, a carcass of an animal. You could be unclean for all sorts of different reasons. Sometimes there was overlap, and there could have been in the question that Ahimelech asks. But particularly here, he says, all I have, I don't have any common bread. All I have is the holy bread. Holy holy means to be set apart, to be different, to be for another category entirely. But Ahimelech is willing to offer it to David because he recognizes the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. 
When it comes to morality and ceremony in the Old Testament, God values both very highly. He says, you need to worship me in the way that I tell you to. There are ritualistic elements to worship that you must follow, but not at the expense of morality, not at the expense of doing the higher thing, of taking care of those who are in need. So Ahimelech is ready. He says, look, you should at least have kept yourselves pure. And if you can do that, I think I can give you the holy bread. Ahimelech also probably knows there's something special about David that may even be the more driving force. David has been anointed by God. He is a holy one before him. And so Ahimelech could very rightly assume in his mind, well, there's a holy person here that God has set apart for a particular purpose. I could very well give him this bread without contradicting God's law. God commanded that the bread be reserved for priests, but he cares more for the preservation of life than for the following of ceremony. So we see Ahimelech's wisdom. We see God's provision. And the first point of our outline, if you're following along in your bulletin, the bread from the table becomes a picture of personal holiness. Now let's go back to the question of whether David is lying or not, because I I don't feel good about just saying, I don't really know if he's lying or if he's doing something wrong here or not. So let's use a tool from our Bible tool belt to help us understand things. One of the things that we need to do when we're reading the Bible is to remember to go to the plain texts that surround a difficult text to try to find some kind of direction, to try to find an answer to, in this case, our particular question, was David wrong to lie to the priest? In this case, it seems that the author wants us, as he shifts the focus over to the matter of the bread of presence, to accept that what David did was perfectly acceptable. That his lie was not a self-centered and wicked intention in his heart, but could have very well been. Again, we don't know. This is speculation at this point. But he is kind of acting in a protective way towards Ahimelech. Kind of the less you know, the better type thing, right? He, He doesn't need to know right now that David is running from Saul, lest Saul or his servants show up and say, have you seen David? Where's he going? And did you help him out? Christians will disagree on this, and we can point to instances in World War II of, you know, are you hiding Jews in your basement right now, or, or, or lying to somebody who has evil intentions to stop them from doing so. There's, there's a question there. Some Christians say, you know, we should just never lie at all, and, and we should just trust the Lord, and we should say, yes, I do have Jews, and you're going to have to get them over my dead body, or whatever, right? This is a difficult thing, but I think it is helpful for us to see that David is not immediately condemned for what he's done here, and that the bigger question is one of morality, is one of ceremony around this bread. It's a question around holiness, because the bread from the table was holy bread and could only be given to holy people. So, as David is in a self-imposed exile here, he's left the kingdom, and he's on his way out, and you might have already picked up on the interesting note of where he ends up in this chapter. We can see that David is really desperate. He doesn't have normal avenues to travel. He needs to go to safe places to find moments of refuge, as he has in past chapters. The tone of the passage suggests that both the story that he told Ahimelech and the bread of the presence being shared with David and his fellows is perfectly acceptable. You can disagree on that, and that's fine. 
But let's come back to the significance of the bread itself. While David runs off alone in fear of Saul, he goes to the place that represents the Lord's presence, and particularly to the table of God's presence. Now, we already sang this and read this this morning from Psalm 23, which isn't immediately associated with this passage, but it is interesting because there the psalmist David says, you prepare me a what? Table in the presence of my enemies. And there's a cool note here in verse 7 that we'll get to in a second about his enemies being present. But even while he's on the run, even while he's, he's headed out not sure what his future holds, David is able to find nourishment and provision in the presence of the Lord. That should be really significant to us. It should be significant to us because those are things that we need from God. But again, we come to Ahimelech, and Ahimelech says, hold on, hold on, you can't just have the holy bread. Are you pure? David says, yes, we, we are. We, we always keep ourselves holy when we are on an expedition, when we're out to do work for the king. We always see to it that we stay holy in, as, in every way that we possibly can. So the priest gave him his holy bread. See, the Lord was already working into David a habit of personal holiness that gave him access to the nourishment that he found at the table of the Lord. Personal holiness. The Lord provided bread for him. And not only the bread, but the right to eat the bread. Because David was kept holy by the Lord. So as we consider our own exile this morning, you might think, like, I'm not in exile. I have a home. I'm at my home church this very moment, perhaps. Or, or you know, I, I have a place that I call home. I don't consider myself to be in exile. We should consider that while we are in this world that we've already declared is my father's world. We also recognize that in my father's world, things are not as they ought to be. And we'll read in a second from 1 Peter that, that Peter actually calls the church in the first century exiles and sojourners, those who are simply passing through, not permanent residents. And that's what we really are. No matter how deep we try to set our roots here in this world, it's never going to be our home. Now, that is really good news, but it might immediately appear as bad news because we might be those who say, man, this is my home. This is where all my stuff is, right? This is where all my memories are. This is where all the things that I love are here on this earth. If that's true, we have a deeper issue to deal with, don't we? David had to leave all of that behind because he saw there was no home for him there. And yet, as he's on his exile, he finds in the Lord everything he needs. And so must we. Consider what Jesus says in regards to bread. We preached through the Gospel of John a couple of years ago. And in chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus teaches them, after feeding the 5,000, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In order to come to Christ, in order to have this bread of life, we have to humble ourselves and acknowledge our need and, and acknowledge our unworthiness. That we, we're not holy. We can't have the holiest of bread. If Jesus is the bread of life, he's even holier than this bread that sits on the table. And yet he has offered it to us freely to make us holy. So it is the Lord who provides not only physical nourishment here on this earth, but personal holiness that we might access God himself. Does time with Jesus 
time with the Holy One. Take a priority in your day, day to day, as you are in exile as well. Do you come to him as though for a filling, refreshing, nourishing meal? Or is it more like taking a quick glance at the Bible in the morning, maybe saying a really short prayer, and then more like popping your vitamins? The Lord gives, maybe it's because vitamins weren't around in the first century, but he doesn't give us a picture like that. He gives us a picture of, of nourishment, of a feast, of something that we come to with great expectations and great delight and great anticipation. Nourishment from his presence, accessed by the holiness he gives us. Next, what does David come, come to next? Verse 7. This is, I love this chapter. I know I probably say that like every time I come to a new chapter. But I really, really love this one. Verse 7 is so excellent. It's so dramatic. Um, and this is another one of those points where you go, wouldn't this make a great TV series? As, as we see, you know, different episodes happening here. And I loved what um, Nathan said last week about Saul's life being like a reality TV show. Do you remember that? That was a great illustration, so I'll just piggyback off of that as well. Because the next thing that happens is David's feeling pretty good. He's got the nourishment that he needs. He's got bread. He's got a plan. He's got somewhere to go. And then verse 7, look down at it with me, if you will. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day. If you stop right there and just think about God's sovereign rule over all things. We love to read the passages where we see his sovereign rule in, in coincidences that give us benefits and that, that advance our needs and all those kinds of things. But this is doing the opposite. It, it just so happened that Doeg, the Edomite, his name sounds like the word for worry in Hebrew which is what David's already doing, isn't he? He's afraid, he's worried. And so Doeg is there lurking in the shadows. And this would be, you know, perhaps the, the last scene before a commercial break in the episode where there's this guy named Doeg. We don't know anything about him. And the author doesn't even tell us what he's gonna do. He's gonna do some pretty awful things. But for now, he was detained before the Lord. Now, that being detained could mean that he had committed some terrible crime, and he is, in one sense, imprisoned before the Lord for it. In another sense, it could mean that he was there for some sense of ritualistic cleansing since he was, in fact, a Moabite, someone outside the nation Israel. We don't know for sure, but we do know for sure that he was there. We know for sure that even in the sanctuary of Nob, David has enemies everywhere. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Now that's not an error as David understands the work of God. That is not David going, Lord, uh, the, do you see who's surrounding me? Why not? Get, and what's going on? No, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies is an astounding, it's, it's throwing down the gauntlet is what it really is. It's God saying, hey, your enemies are around. Why don't you sit down and have a meal with them? Pass the plate. Pass the bread. This is God saying, David, if you trust in me, if I'm your refuge, you have no reason to fear enemies that would even sit at the table with you. But I don't think he wrote Psalm 23 yet. He did write Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 off of the stories we see in this passage. Psalm 56 and verse 6 talking about his enemies that are apparently everywhere. David says, they stir up strife. They lurk. I love that word. That is a good English word, isn't it? Lurking. That's what Doeg is doing. 
They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. David doesn't just have that slight feeling that someone's watching him. He has the assured knowledge that his enemies are around every corner. They're watching every step he takes. He doesn't know what to do. Do you ever feel that kind of pressure? Maybe not in the case of the matter of the safety of your very life. But First Peter tells us, as exiles, as those who are wandering, who are not truly in our home, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, and he's seeking someone to devour. Now, this is really important, because we ought not think too little of Satan, and we certainly ought not think too highly of Satan. On the side of thinking too highly of him, let us know with certainty that his tactics and purpose, and the only thing he can do is tempt us to disobey God. So bring him down if you need to bring him down a notch. But if you've thought too lightly of him and you think you're God's ghostbuster and you can take out Satan on your own and all the spiritual warfare, that's just for you to handle. Remember here that Peter says he's like a roaring lion. And that if you stop there, you might say, yeah, roaring lion, yeah, his bark is worse than his bite. No, Satan's intention is to devour whomever he can find. If we're not watchful, we shouldn't be surprised when sin becomes so steeped in our lives that it is as if we were in the belly of a lion. Personal holiness is about seeking the presence of the Holy One, as we saw with the bread. But it is also about staying alert to the unholy one lurking in the shadows. Peter goes on in chapter 5 to say, resist him. Well, how? We might like to think that he says resist him. Become a spiritual weightlifter. Become a macho man Christian so that you can really tell Satan what he needs to hear. Peter doesn't say that. Resist him. Firm in my own strength. Firm in my own confidence. Firm in my own plan. Firm in your faith in your full trust in who Christ is and the victory he's already won and the promise that he will deliver those who are in exile. Personal holiness. But now we look at verse 7 and we say, hey, Doeg is here. David may know it, he may not know it, but the author author certainly intends to put verse 8 after verse 7. He says, David said to Ahimelech, do you have a spear? Do you have a sword? I, I don't have any weapons. He needs a weapon. And of course, he finds a perfect weapon, doesn't he? Now, a good sword in a story is more than just a flashy, sharp object. It itself should have a story, right? Now, I'll spare you the Lord of the Rings reference here about Anduril, flame of the West, forged from the shards of Narsil, the broken blade that broke the ring from the Dark Lord Sauron, Wielded by a Sealdor prince of Gondor, later carried in pieces by a descendant Aragorn until the day it was remade and symbolized the destruction of evil. If you actually want to talk about it, let me know. But swords in stories are the most impactful when they themselves have a story. And the sword that appears in this is clearly an evidence of God's sovereign leading of these moments. In David's exile, he comes across none other than the sword of Goliath. Now, now our immediate reaction is, all right, nice. We're about to get some action-packed, 
Something's going to happen. He's got a sword now. And you remember, you are, in chapter 17, when we learned about Goliath and all the stuff he carried, everything was gigantic and heavy and amazing and the best of the best. So he doesn't get a little letter opener here. He's carrying a giant's weapon. I love what the language is here. It says, Ahimelech goes, hey, there's none but this here. And David goes, there's none like that anywhere. This is the sword of Goliath. He might have, you could just see him saying, now I'm set. I've got bread, my belly's full, and I've got this awesome sword that maybe he can't even hold with one hand. You gotta love it. The sword has a story. The sword has significance. But guess what? To, I'll admit, somewhat of my own disappointment, you never hear about this sword again. There's not a moment where Goliath is surrounded by 100 Philistines and he says, but then he wielded the sword of Goliath and struck them all. You don't get that at all. Apparently, he carried it for some time, but, but once he became king, you know, he kind of stopped going out to war anyway. The sword, though it has a story, and though it has magnificence in and of itself, the intention and the purpose and the significance of this moment here is not so that David can feel like he can deliver himself, that he can feel like he can protect himself. But rather, I believe, it is meant to point back to his own words in chapter 17, verse 37, where he is speaking to Saul the king as a young boy. This would have been years earlier, by the way, from where we are now. He says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. David knows deliverance, wherever he is, in exile or not, deliverance comes by the Lord. It does not come by sword or spear. Remember what he said to Goliath himself, you come to me with sword and spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And then he says, I'm going to cut your head off and the birds of the air are going to eat it. So there's still some action in there. Pretty exciting. In this moment, though, the sword is a clear reminder of the past faithfulness, the past deliverance of God. Do you let your mind rest on his past deliverance? Do you take time to stop, particularly as you are on your exile and dealing with opposition, dealing with the trials of this life? Do you ever stop and go, I need to wait and remember what God has done. And I mean that primarily in his word, that you must go to his word. Paul says that these things were written down for our learning so that we might have hope. God has delivered people in the past. In our exile, we should expect him to deliver us also. We should go to his word. But do you have a means of talking about God's deliverance at different moments in your own life as well? We were encouraged uh, as a young couple, as, as, as poor college students and newlyweds, to take a box and write down on little pieces of paper, anytime we notice the Lord providing or delivering something in our lives or, or taking care of us, we were encouraged to do that. And we did it for a season. It was wonderful. That box filled up so fast when your eyes are open to looking for God's deliverance, you see it, even in the littlest ways. I mean, some of those days, it was, we got home and we go, he got us groceries today. I don't really know how. Honestly, even today, I look back on how little we were working, and I'm like, how did we, how were we so well fed? I have no idea. We weren't, we weren't working so much because we were students. That's why I wasn't really lazy or anything. Do you have a way to remember the past deliverance of God in your life? 
a great thing to meditate on your Lord's kindness, on the ways he's proven that to you day by day, year by year. Do you have a way to find a renewed confidence that the Lord's word is true and a true refuge when we face opposition, when we feel lost in exile? David recognized even in Psalm 56, which he wrote about the latter part of this passage, that the Lord himself keeps track of our own turmoil and challenges. In verse 8 of Psalm 56, he says to the Lord, you've kept count of my tossings, You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Beloved church, if the Lord so cares for us in our turmoil, may we also take note in whatever way we do, if a box or a journal or whatever, or just at the place of our hearts to stop and remember the Lord has always been faithful and has never disappointed. We've seen David and his personal holiness. We've seen David and the need for his reminder of the Lord's past deliverances as Goliath's sword clearly stands as that memorial. But then we come to the final section of our passage today, and if you thought the lying was a little strange or eating the the holy bread, it just gets weirder, doesn't it? Verses 10 through 15 Verse 10 particularly still just makes me stop a little bit. David rose and fled that day from Saul. We understand that. Where did he go? To Achish. I don't know who Achish is. Oh, he's a king. Okay. Where is he the king of? Gath. Do you remember what Goliath is the Goliath of? Gath. I mean, you killed the guy. You're going to his hometown, and you're not only going to his hometown after you've killed him, but you're carrying his sword on your back, presumably. I don't think it was one of those that you put on your belt. This just seems so backwards, doesn't it? And as I look at this, I go, I can't say David is like an idiot here. He knows what he's doing. The only conclusion can be that he has nowhere else to go except to the Philistines, and not just any Philistine city. Apparently, the only place he can go is where he killed his arch rivals, the the hometown of his arch rival, whom he killed some years earlier. And then we're not surprised at all, are we, when the servants of Achish see him and either recognize him because of his face or because of something that's being said around him, or maybe because of the giant sword on his back, the literal giant sword. But they say to Achish, isn't this David? This is, isn't it? He looks like him. He sounds like him. He's kind of carrying himself in some way, whatever they picked up on. But then look at what they say in verse 11. Is not this David the king of the land? That's kind of an interesting note, isn't it? David isn't the king of the land. He's an exile. He's the exiled king. He's the rightful king. He's the anointed king. But he's not the realized king yet. Just an interesting note. And then they say, we've heard all the songs. You can imagine that in Gath, they they know these songs because Israel sings them and they're really annoying us. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. We know, we know you think you're so great. So they see this wonderful opportunity to capture Israel's main guy, Israel's big hero. And as they arrest him, David takes a very surprising strategy. You might want to see in the next verse, that David said, "Uh uh-uh, no way. 
Goliath swords coming out. You look out, I've killed a giant. My best friend killed a whole troop of Philistines. Watch out for me. No. Instead, he pretends to be crazy. Even embracing the humiliation of letting his, as the ESV translates, spittle run down his beard. Now, just imagine here, all these, all these lovely men in our congregation have these beautiful beards. How, how awkward it would be to come in on Sunday morning and see, you know, dripples of, of spit coming down. You would, your perception of that person would be very different than perhaps it was the week before. But particularly in the culture here, the beard is the sign of manliness. I mean, it still is, isn't it, right? It's not beefy arms, it's the beard. But to do something so humiliating as to drool upon one's own beard was repulsive. I mean, it still is, right? It's like when your kids are little and they drool, you're like, stop that. It's a grown man. David, what's wrong with you? Achish is unimpressed, of course. David comes into his presence and he goes, you know, I have plenty of madmen. Get him out of my presence. The fascinating thing is that David tells us the significance of this. In Psalm 56, 13, written in light of his capture, he says, For you, O God, have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. He sees, in his really weird strategy, the deliverance of God. You know, I I hope and trust and believe that your means of experiencing God's deliverance today doesn't involve any amount of saliva. But you never know. You don't know how the Lord's going to deliver you from the thing you're facing today. And you certainly, though you are called to remember God's past deliverance and say, he is a delivering God, we cannot go back formulaically and say, well, as long as I do whatever happened in the Old Testament, the story that I like, the results, I'll just do that, and then everything will be okay. Sometimes we read our Bibles that way. If I could just mimic what's going on in Exodus here or mimic the whole thing with the feeding of the 5,000 or wherever we may find ourselves. I don't think anybody's ever come to this passage and said, so if I want to experience the deliverance of the Lord, right? In Christ Jesus himself, the greatest surprising grace, which is what God shows David in this, a surprising grace In Christ, that grace was displayed before the entire world to see. And in it, there was a call to personal holiness. In it, there was a great reminder of the Lord's past deliverances, but not just a reminder, a fulfillment of all the things that have come before. All of them were just stories, signs, and shadows. They were significant. They were wonderful. But listen, church, we come together every morning. We don't, every Sunday morning, we don't proclaim the good news that Israel crossed the Red Sea. I mean, that was the event in the Old Testament, the one that they always came back to. And in the moments where they doubted God, they said, he got us across the Red Sea, he can get us through the next thing, right? We preach Christ. And this Christ, this one who came to save us, came not to save us with a giant sword and with a a flashy deliverance, but rather he himself hung upon a tree as a substitute to take your punishment for your sin. That is his deliverance. That is his surprising grace. That is his call to personal holiness because the Holy One has become absolutely unholy on the cross. Because God's word says that God made him to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. 
It wasn't just letting spittle run down the beard. It was to put the Son of God in humiliation and display for the world to see and to absorb the wrath of God for us. Church, let's leave our fear behind. Let's remember that the crucified Christ is now the risen Christ and that deliverance is coming. Whatever opposition you're facing today, however you say, yes, this is how I know I'm in exile today, how things are not right, know that one day God will make all things right. Know that in our waiting, we are called to personal holiness, that we cannot expect to be in his presence unless holiness has been given to us through Christ. Know that in our waiting, we are called to remember that God is a delivering God that he is never disappointed, that he's never gone against his word. And remember, as we look forward, to see surprising evidences of his grace. Church, we, we do face fears this morning. We may fear government teaching abhorrent things to our children. We might fear losing our money. We might fear disease and conspiracy. We might fear just a conversation that we have to have sometime this week, maybe. On top of that, though, we do face spiritual opposition. There is a lion roaring around looking looking for the one he can devour. But in Christ, we have a perfect refuge. We have an assurance of our deliverance. He has granted us his word. And in his word, we see that Christ is the broken bread that makes us whole as we talk about at communion. We see that his word is the sharper sword than Goliath's giant mighty blade. We see his spirit abiding in us, leading us in what looks like a strange way to the world around us. So let's repent of our fear this morning. Not that we should act like it's not there or it's not real or or the troubles that we face aren't serious troubles. But let us look to the Lord for deliverance. And let's repent of living lives as though we're unequipped for exile. It's one of the easiest ways we justify sin in our lives. We just say, Lord, this life's too hard. Like, you gotta understand. You gotta catch me a break here. The Lord has provided you, church, personal holiness. He's provided you a remembrance of his deliverance, the good news to always recall and say, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And he's granted you the promise of surprising grace. I love the old hymn. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. 